بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 108. And for the past few weeks, we've been discussing the Battle of Khaybar. We've looked at the background and what led up to the Battle of Khaybar. We looked at the difficulties the companions had in gaining control of those fortresses. And last week, we looked at the ultimate victory that Allah Ta'ala secured at their hands. Uh, where they were able to basically defeat the Yahud at Khaybar. We looked at some of the post-Khaybar arrangements that were made, um, a basic form of sharecropping where they had agreed that they would give 50% of their crop yield yearly to the Muslims in return for being allowed to stay there uh, until the Prophet or his, uh, his successor deemed fit to end that agreement. So we really finished talking about the Battle of Khaybar, but we're still in the Khaybar story. And that is because a lot of the things that happened after the Battle of Khaybar happened while the Prophet ﷺ was still there. And so we have a number of stories, things that occurred as the Prophet ﷺ was there at Khaybar. As he was there with those 1,500 or so Muslims on the exact same day of the truce that the Jews asked for, Jafar radiallahu ta'ala anhu arrives. This is an interesting story because Jafar radiallahu anhu was in Abyssinia with about 50 or so Muslims. And they were among, these are the first of the Muhajirun, but they're making hijrah not to Medina, but to Abyssinia. So they remained in Abyssinia for give or take 14 years because they made hijrah in the sixth year after the beginning of the da'wah. In the sixth year of the Meccan phase, Jafar along with 50 or so Muslims made hijrah to Abyssinia. And now it is the seventh year after hijrah. So 13 or so years. So well over a decade. And all of this time, this relative of the Prophet ﷺ, this dearly beloved individual to him, is away. You know, imagine you don't see your cousin and your dear friend for over a dozen years. And then all of a sudden, they show up at Khaybar. That is the story of Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu. So there's a backstory to this. We talked about how the Prophet sallallahu had sent letters to different rulers. And the first letter we examined was the letter he sent to Najashi. He sent this letter after the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. And the messenger who delivered the letter, Amr bin Umayyah al-Damri, was told to 
informed the Najashi, the emperor of Abyssinia, that he should send the Muslims back. Because now there's a community in Medina. Not only is there a community in Medina, there's also a peace treaty now. So the roads are clear. The passage is clear. So the messenger told the Najashi that the Prophet ﷺ instructs that all the Muslims living here with you should now go back. And so that message was sent to the Najashi. He received that. And he graciously gave two ships to use for the Muslims to go back from Abyssinia to the Arabian Peninsula. And it's mentioned in the Sira books that there were 16 men and their wives of those men who had, uh, and then those men had died in Abyssinia, their wives are on this ship as well. So you have 50 initially going, but not 50 coming back because some of the men had died in Abyssinia and they're buried in Abyssinia. So you have the men that survived, you have the wives that survived, and among the women who survived was Um Habiba radiallahu anhu, anha, who will soon become a wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa as we'll discuss in the near future. So they make their way back to the Arabian Peninsula and they know that the Prophet is at Khaybar. They don't know what's going on on the ground. As far as they're concerned, it's still a battle ongoing with siege warfare. So Jafar and some of these Muslims, they arrive and they make their way to Khaybar with the intention of giving Nusra, the intention of joining in the battle. So they make their way up to Khaybar. And when Jafar anhu sees his beloved sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, he's overjoyed. And when his cousin, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, sees him, he's overjoyed. And the hadith says that when he saw Jafar, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, stood up and kissed him on the forehead. And when he kissed him on the forehead, he said to him, I don't know which of the two things makes me happier today the victory that Allah gave us at Khaybar or the return of you, Ya Jafar. So he was overjoyed with the return of his cousin, radiallahu anhu. Jafar is also overjoyed to such an extent that the hadith tells us when he saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he hopped in joy. Now the word used here is not just jumping up and down, but it's referring to a style of of, of raqs, a style of dance that was used in Abyssinia that was also seen by the Muslims later on during the Eid celebrations. Uh, and this is uh, a kind of cultural practice that Ja'far who had observed in Abyssinia when they would celebrate momentous occasions or joyful occasions. So he was imitating that cultural practice as an expression of joy for finally reuniting with the Prophet after a dozen years. So this was the return of Ja'far now. Things are rapidly changing. People are coming back. And around the same time as Ja'far's return and his arrival at Khaybar, another group arrived. And they didn't come from Abyssinia, or they did, but it was a roundabout way. They are the people of Ash'ar. These are the Ash'aris of Yemen this tribe of Yemen. They arrived and they were about 50 or so individuals. And before their arrival, 
the Prophet had said to the companions, the, a people will come to you whose hearts are more tender towards Islam than yours. And the people of very soft hearts, very tender, very easygoing people. These are the people of the Ash'ari tribe. And so what happened is, these are people of Yemen. So they're in the south, south of Mecca. Traditionally, everything south of Mecca is Yemen. And they're south of Mecca. And news reaches them eventually that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, is at Khaybar. And that the victory was coming. And now they realize this is a good time for them to make the hijrah. How are they going to make the hijrah though? If you're in the south, south of Mecca, and you're trying to make hijrah, you have to pass through Mecca or that area. This is a bit problematic. So what they did is they took a more accessible, easier route, which was to go on ship and go through the Red Sea and eventually come off the coast and go to Medina. However, when they boarded the ship, the ship went off course, and it ended up landing where? In Abyssinia. It landed in Abyssinia. It landed in Abyssinia, and they get off the land, and they meet Jafar, right? So this, you understand this is happening around the same time. It's not Jafar and then them, but there's a bit of coordination here. They meet Jafar before he boards the ship to go back to the Arabian Peninsula. And he, they meet with the Muslims there, and they basically go to Medina in the same group. They find out the Prophet ﷺ is still at Khaybar, so they all go to join him in battle. And by the time they arrive, the battle is over. Now remember we said that they had the intention of giving Nusra. They had the intention of giving aid as they made their way to Khaybar. So because of that niyyah, that intention they had, although they did not participate at Khaybar, the Muhajirun from Abyssinia, and the people of uh, the, the Ash'aris received some share of the Ghanima because their niyyah was to fight and to defend. They just didn't get the chance. So it said that the, the Ash'aris of Yemen reached Medina. And as they're in Medina, they're going around doing this interesting new practice that no one has encountered before. And that practice is shaking hands, al-musafaha. Prior to their arrival in Medina, the musafaha, the shaking of hands, was not a practice that people did. Not that musafaha was utterly unknown, because it's something shared across multiple civilizations and peoples. But they were the first to initiate the practice of shaking hands as a religious practice. Now, they were the first to establish this. And the Prophet ﷺ had said to the companions, that the people of Yemen are the ones who established the practice of musafaha amongst you, shaking hands. And he said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that one of the signs of the completeness of your love for one another is musafaha. So shaking hands is one of the signs of mawadda and mahabba and having affection for people. So they come to Medina and they're shaking people's hands for the first time. And that became an instituted sunnah, but they were the first to do it. So Jafar has arrived, they arrived with him, they make their way to Khaybar, 
they join the Prophet the fighting is stopped, but they still receive a share of the ghanima because of their intention. And that ghanima was given to them after the Prophet sought the counsel of the Sahaba. The Sahaba that were there, that fought and struggled, they received their shares. But because of the nature of their arrival, the Prophet asked them if they would be willing to uh, divide the shares up in a different way so that they also get some shares. And they willingly agreed to this. So this is joy for victory at Khaybar. And then as soon as that joy comes, another joy comes, which is the arrival of Jafar. And then the other joy, the arrival of the Ash'aris, these people from Yemen. <coughs> you have another group of people that arrive too. You have the people of Dos. The people of Dos. Now, there's a story about the people of Dos. And this goes back to Qufayl ibn Amr radiallahu anhu. The people of Dos had sent a delegation to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi as he was at Khaybar. Among those in the delegation, the waft, was the Sahabi Tufayl ibn Amr. Tufayl ibn Amr had become a Muslim long before while the Prophet sallallahu was in Mecca. And after he became a Muslim in Mecca, in that early Meccan period, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had him go back to his people to engage in da'wah, to live amongst them, to spread the message of Islam. And he spent years with his people calling them to Islam, but no one was responding. No one was becoming Muslim. And this frustrated Tufayl ibn Amr. And in his frustration, he goes back to the Prophet and complains about his people rejecting him. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, these people, my people, they are rejecting the call. I ask you that you make dua against them. Make dua against my people because they're stubborn, they've rejected the call, they're not listening to me. This is his own people. But to this request, the Prophet ﷺ made a dua saying, Oh Allah, guide the people of Dos and bring about their return to us. So he didn't make dua against them, he made dua for them. And now he tells Tufayl ibn Amr, go back to your people again. Go back and call them to Islam and be gentle and easy going with them. Not, it's not enough to just go with the intention of da'wah, but your da'wah is unproductive. You have to go with an attitude of sincere concern and care with some gentleness and patience with your people. So he tells him to go back and to call to Islam with gentleness. So he goes back and he remains among his people calling them to Islam patiently. As he's there with his people calling them to Islam, the Prophet ﷺ makes hijrah to Medina. He's still among his people of Dos. He's still among his people as the Prophet ﷺ and the Muhajirun and the Ansar are all in Medina. He's there in, with Dos making da'wah so far away as the Muslims witness Badr, as the Muslims witness Uhud, as the Muslims witness Khandaq. And at around the time of Khaybar, guess what had happened? In, in all of those years of patient da'wah following the wasiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, 70 
to 80 people of those had become Muslim at his hands. And you think, okay, that's not a large number, but this was not a metropolis. It's a small tribe, so it's a significant number. A lot of progress has been made. So when, the, when they arrived as a delegation to formally pledge their loyalty, they found out the Prophet ﷺ is not in Medina, he's actually in Khaybar. So what did they do? They didn't sit in Medina and wait for him to come back. They decided they're going to march out to Khaybar as well. And they get there after the victory has been secured. And the Prophet ﷺ considered their march an intention to go to Khaybar enough for them to receive shares of the spoils as well with the permission of the Sahaba. So they too received the spoils. Because remember we said last week, these are not small spoils of war. There's a lot of wealth that was gained in the aftermath of the Battle of Khaybar. There was a lot to go around. So Jafar receives. The Muhajirun from Abyssinia that came back, they receive. The Ash'ari, the Dos delegation, they, they all receive this Ghanima. Now, among the Dos, there was a very special person. Now, Tufayl ibn Amr is a very special person. And he toiled tirelessly for years with his people, all alone for quite a long while. The only Muslim in his tribe, maintaining his deen calling to Islam until slowly one person becomes a Muslim, then another, then another, until we get to 70 or 80. Among those people who became Muslim as a result of Tufayl's da'wah was one that all Muslims basically know or have heard of, and that is the Sahabi, al-Sahabi al-Jaleel, who was known as Abdul Shams ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi al-Zahrani. Abdul Shams ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi al-Zahrani, better known as Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. Now you'll note that his name was Abdul Shams, which literally means the servant of the sun. That is considered a bad name. Any name that has ubudiyya, that, or that expresses a meaning of ubudiyya, servitude to other than Allah, is a bad name. And that name is to be changed. And so his name was changed to Abdul Rahman, from Abdul Shams to Abdul Rahman. But we don't refer to him even as Abdul Rahman. We know him as Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. And in all of the hadith narrations, you hear the kunya, you don't hear the name. You know, وَعَنْ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالُ You know, in the Riyadh Salihin class, if you have to guess who's the Rawi, you can hedge, we're not betting people, but you could hedge your bets that it's going to be Abu Huraira. Uh, and that's because not only being among the most famous of the companions, out of all of the companions, he has narrated the most hadith traditions as any other companion. Now think about this though. He made hijrah in the seventh year of the hijrah. How many years did he get to spend in suhbah with the Prophet wasallam? Three years, three years. Yet he narrates 5,374 hadith. Now some modernists and people who like to uh, cast doubts on the authority of the sunnah 
find this to be very far-fetched. But that's because of their jahl, their extreme ignorance. Because Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu doesn't just collect hadith in those three years. After the passing of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he continues to collect by going to the Sahaba who spent more time. So a lot of the hadith that he is transmitting are hadith that he either heard directly or things he witnessed directly or what was transmitted to him by the hundreds of other Sahaba he was around that he followed around and asked to narrate to him these hadith. That's why we get 5,374 hadith in total. After the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, he continued to gather these narrations, taking mostly from Abu Bakr, Umar, Aisha, Fadl ibn Abbas, Usama bin Zayd, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, and Ka'b al-Ahbar. So a lot of those hadith, you know, Abu, Abu, Abu Bakr anhu doesn't actually have a lot of hadith transmissions. You don't find too many hadith which say, عن أبي بكر الصديق. There's not a lot. But he does transmit a lot. It's just they're being transmitted to us through Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. He collected those and he transmits. So the question is, how did Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, this new Muslim who migrates from his people of Daus to Medina, gather so many hadith in a relatively short amount of time? And there's a number of ways you can answer that. Number one, we can look at his material condition that made it possible for him to spend more time around the Prophet ﷺ than many others. Because we know that when he arrived in Medina, he was among the Ashab al-Suffa. Who are the Ashab al-Suffa? These are the people who were essentially homeless upon their arrival in Medina. They didn't have the means or the funds or the family or tribal connections to quickly get a house and build a business for themselves. They had very, very little. They migrated with their bodies and the clothes on their back. And those people stayed for however long they stayed in that designated area in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, the area known as the Sufa. So he was from Ashab al-Suffa. What does that mean? It means that he doesn't have so many responsibilities. There's no wife, there's no kids, you know, you live off little. So he has a lot of free time to walk around and spend time with the Prophet ﷺ. Literally from sunrise to sunset, anytime he's not in his house, he can be around listening attentively, memorizing and gathering whatever he can from the pearls of wisdom coming from the blessed mouth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. And what is not being said is being witnessed of actions, of approvals, of incidents, of interactions with other people. He's witnessing all of that because he has all this free time. And that free time was afforded to him because he didn't have so many responsibilities being from Ashab al-Suffa. Another factor in Abu Huraira collecting so many narrations is that he was also very eager to learn. He came with a great deal of eagerness and love of knowledge and seeking out the statements of the Prophet ﷺ. So he had tafarrugh, this dedication, 
and free time. He had this himma, this aspiration to learn and grow and gather as much as he possibly could. And in addition to his free time and his own aspiration, he had something more valuable than either. He had the dua of the Prophet Because you can spend a lot of time with someone and be very uh, intent on collecting what that person says, but some people struggle with their memory, and you can only memorize so much. But he had the tawfiq, because the Prophet ﷺ made dua for his memory. And that dua is answered, so whatever he's collecting, he's also memorizing very quickly and very easily. So he has free time, he has himma, and he has tawfiq. You can have free time, and you can aspire to something, but you don't find tawfiq in it. Right? Now with tawfiq, you can succeed in that endeavor even if you don't have all the free time in the world. But if you have free time, and you have himma, and you have tawfiq on top of that, the doors of success are wide open for you. So those are the three main means. In terms of the other means, we said that he collected from numerous other companions. Likewise, there are several chains of transmission for a single hadith. A single hadith might have multiple turuq, multiple transmission routes. And the content of the hadith, the matan of the hadith would be the same, but the asanid, the turuq, would be multiple. But those hadith would all be considered individual hadith, even if the matan is the same. So let's say you have a single hadith, a single matan, a single textual statement recorded from the Prophet But it comes with 10 or 15 transmission routes. How many hadith is that considered? It's considered 15. So we're looking at it from that i'tibar, that perspective of the transmission routes, not the matan itself. The matan is one, but it comes through multiple routes, so it's counted as however many. So a lot of those hadith of the 5,374 are some repetitions, right? Uh, and lastly, uh, as we said, he didn't stop collecting. So what you have in Abu Hurairah is kind of the, the ideal model of the talibu ilm. The talibu ilm, the one who is pursuing sacred knowledge, he needs certain qualities to be successful. And some of these have been mentioned in poetry. There is a diwan, and it is said that it is the, the, the diwan of an Imam al-Shafi'i, but in reality it's mansub ila Imam al-Shafi'i, but it's not his. Right? Sometimes you hear qal Imam al-Shafi'i, yani, in some poetry, it's not his poetry. His poetry, first, his poetry is far superior to much of the poetry in the Diwan. From, a, a, from the standpoint of poetic analysis, uh, no, it's not as good as, as his actual poetry. Uh, so it's not actually his, but there is a poem, there is a, a bait, a couplet that's ascribed to Mimma Shafiri, although it's not his, but the meaning is very beautiful. And the meaning has been reproduced 
in the different manuals on the etiquette of seekers of knowledge. He, and it said that he said this, but he didn't. But the, the poem is, Akhi, لَن تَنَالَ الْعِلْمَ إِلَّا بِسِتَّةٍ سَأُنْبِيكَ عَنْ تَفْصِيلِهَا بِبَيَانِ ذَكَاءٌ وَحِرْصٌ وَاجْتِهَادٌ وَبُلْغَةٌ وَصُحْبَةُ أُسْتَاذٍ وَطُولَ زَمَانِ so the, the poem says, Dear brother, you will not obtain knowledge except with six qualities. And I will inform you of these qualities in detail. He says, number one is intelligence. You, you have to have some intelligence. Abu Hurairah was very intelligent. Wahirsun, you have to be eager. You can't be half-hearted about it. You have to give it your all. Wujtihadun, you have to work hard. You have to struggle. It doesn't come easy. Wabulghatun, you have to have... Bulgha can refer to wealth, like you have enough to dedicate time to it. It can also refer to free time, right? You, you just have the avenues for studying. And you have to keep the company of a teacher, and you have to spend a long time doing this. It takes a long time. So you see with Abu Hurairah, it's not that he spends a long time. But he continues after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. So in that sense, he does spend a long time. He has free time. He has energy, focus, determination, himma, aspiration. And more important than all of that combined, he has the dua of the Prophet ﷺ for his memory. And so he memorized all of these hadith and transmitted them to us. There's a lot about our deen that we only know through Abu Hurairah anhu. So he becomes Muslim in the seventh year after the Hijrah. When you hear all of those hadith, you would imagine he must have spent dozens of years. No, just three years. Three years. So that happened right after Khaybar. Something else happened right after Khaybar. And that is in the story of Safiya bint Huyay. And this is an amazing story. Sophia is the daughter of Huyay ibn Akhtab of Banu Nadir. Right? Where was Huyay ibn Akhtab in the seerah? He's from Banu Nadir. But in the seerah, we learned that he was with Banu Qurayla. He, he allied with them, he conspired with them against the Prophet and so his fate was their fate. So her father had been killed after the Battle of Ahzab when the Prophet had dealt with Banu Qurayza. So this is Safiya, the daughter of Huyay bin Akhtab. Banu Nadir, where were they in all of this? They had been exiled and they were in Khaybar. So she's young. She's young when this happens. She goes to Khaybar. She gets married at the age of 17. Who did she marry? She married Hinana, one of the chieftains of the people of Khaybar, the one who had sent the message to Ghatafan. And we know what happened to Kinana last week because he was concealing the treasures and he was killed for his treachery. So she would become the wife of Kinana. But before we get to those details, let's hear what Sophia says about her own experience. 
She says, when the Prophet ﷺ first came to Medina, I was a young girl and I was given uh, preferable treatment by my father and my uncle Abu Yasir. So they would play with me, they would talk with me, they would spend time with me. She was very beloved to them. She says one day they came back home and they were very, how can we say in English, they were very down in their spirits. They were very sullen and downcast. They looked upset about something. She's telling this story. So this was the day the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina. The day the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina was the day they came back home and she sees them and they're not in their playful mood joking with her and talking with her, but they look really sad and upset. She's noticing this as a young girl. And she says that she went up to them running, expecting that they're going to hug her and play with her and talk with her like they always do, but they completely ignored her. She said they, they looked utterly dejected. Her uncle asked her father, Huyay ibn Akhtab, is he the one, referring to the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, is he the one? And her father Huyay says, by the Lord of Musa, he is the one. The final Prophet wasallam. Allah testifies to this reality. Right? What does Allah say about them? They, they recognize him just as they recognize their own sons. He said, he is the one. So the uncle said, well, what are we going to do? Huyay ibn Akhtab said, such a contrast. He is the one, and then what are we going to do? We're going to oppose him as long as he lives. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. You know it's the haqq. And you knowingly go against it. We will oppose him for as long as he lives. So she's witnessing this and she's later recalling this in the hadith. So she's seeing all that play out as a young girl. So she's telling that story. Now we know that when Banu Nadir was exiled, Safiya was exiled with them. She's a teenage girl. She's with her family. Where else is she going to go? So she goes with the family. She goes to Khaybar. She gets a bit older, and at the age of 17, she marries Kinana. We know what happened to Kinana last week. He was killed for his treachery. Now, what does that make Sophia? It makes her a captive, and it makes her a widow. So, as a captive, she was given to Dihya al-Kalbi, radiallahu anhu. But a lot of the Sahaba, they suggested to Dihya al-Kalbi, that no, she should actually go to the Prophet Something about her, she should go to him. And what we have in the story is how she went from being a captive concubine to being a wife. This is the story. So when they left Khaybar, everyone's leaving, including the captives, not those who remained. When they're one night away from Medina, Sophia began her hayd, or sorry, her hayd had ended, rather. She began her hayd uh, shortly before Khaybar, and she tells that story, we'll get to it. But one day away from Medina, the hayd was finished. 
her menses is over, and now she is readied for being with the Prophet The Prophet tells Umm Sulaym, the mother of Anas ibn Malik, to make her ready, to prepare her. Umm Sulaym tells the story and says, I took two pieces of cloth and I put them between some trees for privacy, and the women had whatever they could get to prepare her. And we were frustrated because, you know, they're on the road. They just came from Khaybar. They're not bringing a lot of stuff. She says, we were frustrated because we didn't have a lot to beautify her with. We didn't have a lot of perfume. We didn't have a lot of jewelry. So that was a bit frustrating to them. She says, but when we finished preparing her with what little we had, we smelled perfume more fragrant than any other perfume we had smelled before. So this is this preparation for the, the night of Zafaf, right? Sophia tells the story in her own words and says that during that night, the Prophet ﷺ said to me, your father Huyay was the most open of the Yahud in enmity against me until Allah caused his death. Now you could read that narration by itself. But put it in the whole story. She just finished her menses. She's being prepared for uh, being escorted into the presence of the Prophet ﷺ. She's perfumed. All of this is done. It's hardly romantic talk to say, on the night, your father was the bitterest of enemies to me. And as a result, Allah caused his death. But you have to understand there's a deep wisdom in this statement. This statement is very wise because it's a kind of test. He's trying to gauge where her loyalties lie. Is she still loyal to her people? Or is she going to be loyal to the Prophet ﷺ? She wants to gauge her reaction and see where she stands. Is she committed to iman and loyalty or not? So how did Sophia reply to this? She says, Ya Rasulullah, doesn't Allah say in the Qur'an that no soul shall be burdened with the sin of another? That was her reply. And to this, the Prophet ﷺ gave her another test. He said, you have a choice. I give you a choice. If you accept Islam, I will keep you for me. If you return if you remain in your faith as a Yahudiya, perhaps I will free you and you can return to your people. You see how this is a test, right? Because if she becomes a Muslim, she will remain. If she chooses to remain Jewish, she might remain a captive or she might be allowed to go back to her people. You see, this is, this is a tricky situation because it's not as if he's saying to her, if you choose to remain, I just let you go. I, perhaps I will let you go. So this is a test of her loyalty. Again, is it with the truth or not? So she hasn't yet been freed. She's still technically a captive. She's still technically a concubine. So essentially, if she becomes a Muslim, she will still remain a captive. She'll still remain a concubine. As a legal status of milkiya, that status remains even if she becomes a Muslim. 
But if she remains as a Jew, she might be freed, might not be freed. What was her reply to this? She says, Ya Rasulullah. And that right there tells you everything. Of course, the Yahud recognized this, but here it's coming from ikhlas and sincerity and idhan and actual submissions. She says, Ya Rasulullah, I was already inclined to Islam even before you offered it to me. Even before you presented Islam as an option, my heart was already inclined to it. And I've already believed in you. And I have no desire to remain in my previous faith. In addition to that, Ya Rasulullah, I have no family. My father and brother are no more. Her father and her brother. Notice that she doesn't say her husband. But her husband was killed too. That's from the wisdom of Sophia. She's not even bringing him up. She's past him. She's done with him. She doesn't even mention him among family. He's not family anymore. She says, I have no family. My father and brother are no more. And you have asked me to choose between kufr and Islam. Allah and his messenger are more beloved to me than going back to my people. So right there and then, Sophia radiallahu anha converts to Islam. And right then and there, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam frees her and he gets married to her. So she wasn't even a captive after this. He gets married to her. And when you look at the narrations in the seerah, it seems as if she knew this was going to play out. She may not have known the specifics, but it seems like she knew this is exactly what is going to happen in the near future. Because we have a couple of hadith which describe some experiences she had before the battle of Khaybar that point to this eventually happening. So we have this narration where it appears the seed of Iman was planted even before the battle of Khaybar. Ibn Hisham narrates this. Ibn Hisham, as well as others, they record that when the Prophet ﷺ first saw Sophia, he noticed that, he ha- that she had a bruise on her face. He asked her about this bruise. And she said that a week before, she had a dream that the moon had risen from the direction of Yathrib, of Medina. So it's as if she's seeing Medina and the moon is rising over it. And then the moon over Medina then falls into her lap. That's the dream she has. And when she wakes up, and she tells her story, how does she get the bruise on the face? She says she, w- she wakes up and she tells her husband at the time, Kinana, about the dream. Kinana gets so upset. And in his rage, he slaps her, saying, do you think that the king of the Arabs is going to marry you? And out of his anger, he struck her. So even Kinana knew that the dream was referring to the Prophet So she tells this story, and she says that soon after Kinana struck her in the face, she began her minces. She began the minces, and they had no approach of each other from that moment forward. And then the siege of Khaybar occurs, and then, you know, eventually he gets killed. And then as they are one day from Medina, her menses finishes. And then we have this whole conversion 
and then the marriage to the Prophet So they get married uh, one day from Medina. And on the wedding night, you know, some of the Sahaba were still a bit worried because could this be some possible treachery? Is there any treachery or trickery afoot? Could she be pretending in order to try to harm the Prophet One of those who was, who was very concerned was Abu Ayyub al-Ansari He was worried that maybe she would try something in the night. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari decided that he's going to wait outside of the tent of the Prophet at some distance with his sword in his hand just in case something runs afoul and he has to go and defend the Prophet from Safiya. He's worried she's going to betray him. When the Prophet finds out what Abu Ayyub was doing the next morning, he laughs. And he says to Abu Ayyub, Rahimakallah, may Allah have mercy on you, Ya Aba Ayyub. And then he made a dua, Oh Allah, protect Abu Ayyub as he spent his night protecting me. So there's still this ambivalence that some have that, you know, what's going on here. So the Prophet ﷺ spent the night like that. They camped at another area called a sahba and they remained there for three days. And it was in that location where they had the walima for this new marriage to Safiya. The walima, because they're on the road, they didn't have meat and they didn't have bread. So Anas radiallahu anhu says that the Prophet wasallam said to the Muslims, whoever has food, let him bring it, whatever it may be. So they brought whatever they had on hand. Anas says that some brought dates, some brought some, they call it solidified butter, we would call it ghee. They brought that, a clarified butter. Some brought some barley and they took all these ingredients and they mixed them all up to make a very simple kind of sweet dish. And that was the food for the walima between the Prophet ﷺ and Safiya. So after the marriage occurs, the answer is given to the question that a lot of the Sahaba had. Is she a concubine or is she a wife? They were unsure what is her status at this stage. They left a Sahaba for Medina and it was in this part of the journey that they realized that she is in fact the wife of the Prophet and not a concubine before it was unclear to them so as they are leaving for Medina from this area where they camped uh, the hadith says that the Prophet had his camel lower itself kneel itself down and then he knelt down on one foot with the thigh exposed like this so that she could climb onto his blessed thigh, step on the thigh as a kind of step ladder to get on top of the camel so she could ride. And here you see the intelligence and the adab of Safiya radiallahu anha. Because as the Prophet sallallahu brings the camel down and takes a knee so that she could climb on to the camel using his knee, she did not want to put her foot on top of the thigh of the Prophet ﷺ in this way. So what she did instead was to put her knee on his thigh and then hoist herself up that way. So instead of using the bottom of the foot, 
she used her knee. So his knee is bent like this. She puts her knee on top of that and then just manages to get on top of the camel. And here you see the adab that she has in not wanting to put her foot on top of the thigh of the Prophet ﷺ. When she gets on top of the camel, now the camel is sitting upright. It was at this stage that the Prophet ﷺ took a garment, like a cloak, and he gives it to her and has her wrap herself up, covering herself. The Sahaba see this at a distance, and it was at that point that they realized this is the wife. Why? Because the way she wrapped the garment around herself, covering herself, was the specific way that was commanded for the Ummahatul Mu'minin, the wives of the Prophet That particular style of covering, the way in which she did it, was particular to the wives, and that is not the way that concubines dress. Even today, I mean, we don't have concubines really, but in fiqh, in Islamic law, in the pre-modern texts that talk about the fiqh of, 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 of riq, istirqaq, and, and this concubinage, uh, people, women who are in a state of concubinage don't are not to wear hijab. They don't. That's in the books of fiqh. And Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu would discipline those women that were still in the concubinage role if they were covering like free women. So by him covering her as a free woman, like the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, they realized she's a wife. She's not a concubine anymore. So they go back to Medina. They're not too far away. Eventually they get to Medina and the Muhajirun there, the Ansar there, they hear that Sophia had become Muslim and that she is now the wife of the Prophet And of course, this eventually reaches Aisha radiallahu anha. And the women, the wives, they have the natural jealousy. Completely normal, completely natural. She hears about this. What does she do? The hadith says that she disguised herself so that it wouldn't be obvious that this is Aisha trying to look for Sophia to see what she looks like and what her personality is. So she disguises herself and goes into the crowd to find where she's at. And as she's making her way there, the Prophet sees her recognizes it's a disguise and that this is actually Aisha. And when she sees him seeing her, she turns around quickly and leaves. Now eventually the Prophet ﷺ catches up with her and he embraces her. And he says, how do you find Sophia? What do you think? And she says, out of her natural wifely jealousy, she says, a Jewess among the Jewesses of her kind The Prophet ﷺ said, don't say that, for she has embraced Islam sincerely. You see, sometimes the jealousy gets the best of people. He said, don't say that, for she has embraced Islam sincerely. We have in the Mustadrak of Imam al-Hakim another hadith which talks about this. In his Mustadrak, we have this narration from Safiya, and this is her story. How was she received by some of the wives? 
She says, The Prophet ﷺ came to me one day and found me crying. He says, Ya bint Huyay, O daughter of Huyay, ma yubkik, what is making you cry? She says, It has reached me that Hafsa and Aisha have spoken badly about me and that they say we're better than she is because we are the cousins of Rasulullah and his wives. Not just wives, because she's a wife too, but we're cousins through the family line among Quraysh. So she's upset about this and she's at home crying. The Prophet says, why didn't you say to them, how can you be better than me? When my father is Harun, my uncle is Musa, and my husband is Muhammad. That was the response. Of course, by when she said when he says father and uncle, this is Majazan. You know, it's she is in the line, so technically there is descent. But it's a good response. Because she has anbiya in her nasab. And one of them is her husband. One of them is from another line. So this was the response he gave to her to cheer her up, brighten her spirit, lift her spirits. And, you know, these things happen sometimes between co-wives. So Sophia was 17 years old when she married the Prophet ﷺ because she was a newlywed when she got married to Kinana. It didn't last very long at all. And she died at the age of 52. And she is buried in Al-Baqi'ah. So this is her story. And we have other stories next week. Because what we have in the next phase, in the post-Khaybar environment, we have about six months between Khaybar and the make-up Umrah, Umratul Qadha. And there's a number of little things that happened in between in that six months. Uh, we have a, a few Saraya expeditions. We have some boycotts going on. And we do have one piece of unfinished business with Khaybar. And that is the attempt of Zainab bint al-Harith, one of the Jewish women of Khaybar, to poison the Prophet We will discuss that next week, inshallah, and then look at the, those six months in between Khaybar and the makeup Umrah, Umratul Qadha, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Naam. So this is istibra. Yeah, so for a, a concubine, the, in the sharia, if she is a, a jadiyah or sabiya as they call it, what they go through is istibra. Yani hayda wahida. Yeah. She came into the milk of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa istibra. So it's, it's, Completely fine. There's no idda like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
She wasn't freed. Yeah. So, yeah, different scenario. Huh? Yeah, that's the yeah. The call of jamhur. So yeah, we go we go with that, right? Unless there's really compelling evidence that states the other the other point. Yeah. So there's that distinction. Yeah, so when, in the Meccan period of the Sira, when we talk about the earliest part of the Sira, one of the things we cover is the Nasab, the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad. And the hadith says that when the Prophet would describe his Nasab, he would halt at Adnan. And he would say, Kadab al Nasabun. Man qala hadha kalam. Ayyuh. He would say, Kadab al Nasabun. The genealogists lie. Things get mixed up the further back you go. So he would halt at Adnan. Of course, that didn't stop some of the ulama from attempting to piece together a lineage. And there's certain riwayat that indicate the lineage going from Adnan all the way back to Adam. But it's something you can't take even as a, there's no real evidence for it. So I mentioned this to say, if the Prophet ﷺ would mention his nasab and halt at Adnan, it's because beyond that, things are, it's a little unclear. But we know that these people are from Banu Israel. So that's a fact, they're Banu Israel. So you have the nasab going back however many generations, that can be established. But there may be a large gap between that period and Nabiullah Musa, Nabiullah Harun. But we know the nasab does go back ultimately. So in ascribing the nasab to them, it's a true statement. Yeah, so well, the line goes through Harun. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a very clear point to be made here. Yeah, yeah. Harouni, Harouni, and Nasr. Yeah. 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 Yeah.